read an article recently that listed some of the top 10 reasons why employees quit their job. And I want to share a few of these reasons with you. One reason has to do with whether or not the organization is financially stable. If there have been layoffs and reduced hours at work and salary freezes and bad press, employees often start sending out their resumes. Another reason has to do with the meaningfulness of the job. If employees do not feel as if what they're doing makes a big difference in the world, they often don't stay too long either. Another reason employees leave their jobs is if they feel bored or under challenge at work. And another reason they leave is when they don't have ample opportunities to use their skills and abilities to better the business. But of all the reasons given in this article that I read, two of the top three reasons given for why employees leave their jobs had little to do with the work and everything to do with relationships in the workplace. They had little to do with the employee job requirements and everything to do with who that person was working for and who that person was working alongside. According to this article, the number three reason why employees leave their jobs is because of bad relationships with co-workers and the number one reason is because of bad relationships with their boss. I also read another article that said that bad relationships in the workplace is one of the, the main contributors to poor job performance. A, a recent report from the Carnegie Institute of, of Technology stated that of all people who fail in their careers, most fail because they cannot get along with people. Well, believe it or not, Scripture does in fact speak to this employer-employee relationship, which is good news for us, right? Because for many of us, we spend the majority of our time each and every week in this context, in the workplace. And this was also the case for many in the first century as well. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, we are coming to the end of this sermon series through Ephesians entitled Walking Worthy. We just have two weeks left in this series, this week and next. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9 and then next week we're going to come back and we're going to wrap up the rest of the chapter and book. Several weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians 5, and in verse 18, Paul tells the Christians of his day and us, his greater Christian audience, that to walk worthy for God, one must be filled with the Spirit of God. And remember we said that to be filled with the Spirit means that we are to come under the influence of, under the control of the Holy Spirit, and we are to live under His authority 
and under his influence. Paul tells us that when we do that, when we conduct our lives in this way, with that comes a variety of fruitful results. One being that we come to understand and appreciate and value the relationships that God has given us the way he intends. Paul explains in Ephesians 5.21 that when we're controlled by the Spirit, one result is that we submit to one another the way God has called for us to submit out of a reverence for Christ. And in the following verses, Paul goes on to give three contexts where we are to see submission and authority. Three contexts where we are either to exercise authority or we are to be under authority. And notice that all of these take place in the home. We said last week that these are what many call the household codes. And these household codes tell us that wives are to submit to their husbands, children are to submit to their parents, and slaves are to submit to their masters. Two weeks ago, we discussed the husband and wife relationship. Last week, we looked at the parent-child relationship. And so this week, we're going to be discussing this relationship between masters and and slaves. And as we begin, before we begin, we have a lot of explaining to do, don't we? We do. First, we have to answer this question. Why is this relationship, the relationship between master and slaves, included in this husband-wife, parent-child relationship? Well, this is where context helps us. You see, in this day, Slaves made up one-third of the population in the major cities in the Greco-Roman world. And they were considered to be an integral part of the family unit. That was the context in Paul's day. So he includes this master-slave relationship in this passage because household servants were just as much a part of the family unit as husbands, wives, and parents, and children. This would have not been strange to Paul's audience in that day, though it is strange for us today. Now, again, before we get into this passage, we have a lot of explaining to do in the way of context. This is a very challenging passage for me. I have to be honest with you. If I was just picking passages at random, Sunday after Sunday, this would not be on my long list, okay? But this is the great thing about preaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. You have to preach what is next in the text, and this passage on masters and slaves is what is next in the text, okay? Let me say this as well. We have a bad habit of reading and understanding the Bible through our own cultural lens and and reading it with our cultural context in mind. The Bible is not meant to be read in that way. We have to understand this book, though it was written by God with a greater audience in mind, it was also written by human authors 
to an audience of a particular time and we must understand these passages in the Bible in the context in which they were written. Many today who have, who have studied about slavery in, in the West and have read about it and have watched movies about how slaves were treated terribly in our country, they read Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 with those images in their head and they begin to panic. Thinking that God's word supports this kind of oppressive and abusive slavery system. That's not the case. Well, many will ask, well then, what is the case, Graham? What is it? You tell me, because it seems as if slavery is not condemned, but condoned in Scripture. Let's talk about it. There are a few questions we need answered before we discuss this passage. One is this, whether or not slavery in Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world was different from slavery in the West and in early American history, and the answer is yes, it was. One of the main differences was that people were not enslaved in that day due to race. Some were slaves because they were prisoners of war. Others were second and third generation slaves. They were born into it. Others were slaves by choice. Some of you are like, that didn't make sense. Well, you're understanding it through your own cultural lens, right? There were many who chose to be a household servant in that day because they were paid pretty good. They got to live in a nice home. They got to eat good food, receive good health care. Many even got an education. And after working for a time, they could earn up enough money to purchase their own freedom once again. So for some, it wasn't a bad gig. So it was different, much different than the way we understand it today. But there's another question we need to ask, and it's this. Though certain household servants had it pretty good, was slavery oppressive at times in places like Ephesus and Rome and elsewhere? And the answer to that question is yes. Oftentimes it was. Though there were some who had it pretty good, There were a lot of abuses. You had many rulers, many masters who abused their authority. So though slavery in the Greco-Roman world was completely different from the way we understand it today, in our looking back at our nation's history, there was quite a bit of abuse. And some will hear this and say, then why didn't Paul, why didn't Paul push to abolish it? Why didn't Paul push for social change. I mean, let's be honest, he didn't, did he? Some of you may remember a couple of years ago, around the time of the presidential election, I preached from Romans 13, where Paul tells the Christians at Rome to submit to governing authorities instead of calling for them to overthrow this corrupt and oppressive Roman government. And here, he calls for slaves to obey their masters. Why? Why didn't Paul push for social change? Why do you think? Here's the reason I think. I believe 
that Paul understood that those standing against social evils is a good thing. Spreading the gospel so that hearts can be changed is better by far. And a heart change is what truly brings about social change, does it not? I mean, history tells us this. As the gospel advances and as it has advanced, societies have changed for good. So heart change through the spread of the gospel was, was Paul's main focus in ministry, which is why he doesn't seek to tackle this slavery system that affected one out of every three in the Greco-Roman world. But I also want you to notice this. Though Paul does not abolish this practice, he does not condone it either. He never says that, that slavery is a great thing. He doesn't ever say, masters, you are to own slaves, for that's the best way, that's the best, that's right. He doesn't say that. But he does speak to both masters and slaves who are now believers, and he speaks to how they are to conduct themselves as believers in this context. But again, he never says slavery is a great thing. It was just common at that time. Notice something else. Notice that when Paul addresses the relationship of husband and wife and parent and children, he goes beyond the immediate context and shows that these relationships were established early on. When Paul talks about children being under the authority of their parents, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is just the right thing to do. This is woven into the very fabric of society. And then remember, he goes back to the book of Exodus and shows this was established early on. This is number five, God's Big Ten Commandments. When he says wives are to be subject to their husbands, he goes back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. He quotes Genesis 2, before the fall. And he shows that this too is the natural order of things. This is just a part of the creation order. But notice he does not say that about this relationship between slaves and masters. This is cultural. And again, though Paul speaks to both slaves and masters, he never says it's okay, especially an oppressive slavery system where people are stolen away and where they're held captive and beaten and abused. In fact, the Bible condemns this kind of practice. Did y'all know that? Scripture is clear that if anybody ever stole a man or a woman away to be a slave, they would pay for it with their life. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 that the ungodly, the unholy, the profane are those who are enslavers. And the Greek word for enslavers mean those who buy and kidnap and, and, and sell people. In Exodus 21, we're told that whoever steals someone and sells him shall be put to death. And if you strike a slave... That slave is to be avenged. So scripture 
condemns this oppressive slavery system. And, and Paul himself, he never says slavery is okay. But that was the context of those in Paul's day. And again, some will say, well, if Paul is speaking to both Christian masters and Christian servants, which is what he is, right? He's, he's talking to the Christians of his day in Ephesians. They, they go on to say, well, then why doesn't he just call for those Christian masters to let their Christian slaves go free? That's kind of an interesting question, right? Why didn't Paul just call for them to do that? Well, think about it with me for a minute. They live in a culture where one out of three people in the population are slaves. Chances are good, many of us in here, if we lived in this day and age, many of us would have been a household servant, a slave. So if you lived at this time and you were a a slave, listen to this, the safest place for you to be was to be in in, in a household where you had a Christian master who had been changed from the inside out by the gospel. And so I, I, I believe Paul probably knew, though he doesn't say it here, that if he abolished this system in the household of believers, chances are good that, that these slaves would have gone back out in the world and they might have ended up as a slave in another household of a non-Christian and oppressive master. I mean, Paul doesn't say that, but it just it makes sense, doesn't it? So instead, what Paul does here in this passage and elsewhere is he calls for a transformation of this relationship from what it had become in the household, which was an oppressive slavery system, into what we now know of today as more of an employer-employee relationship. Paul transforms this relationship. So instead of pushing for social change, here's what Paul does. He spreads the gospel, and as the gospel spreads and hearts are changed, Paul speaks to this master-slave relationship, and he seeks to transform this relationship into what we now know of today as an employer-employee relationship, which is why many pastors make this comparison here, and this is why we're going to make this application here today as well, okay? I know that was a long, lengthy introduction, but I had to do that. You know that, right? So if you're not there yet, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. And let's look at verses 5 through 9. We're going to go through them quick. But there are two key principles that we can take away from this text and apply it to the workplace. One applies to employees and the other to their employers. Okay? So let's discuss these. First application that is to be made is for employees. And here it is right here. Employees, you are to work hard for your employers as to the Lord. Look at verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant 
or is free. Notice first here. Paul calls for bondservants, for Christian slaves, to work hard for their Christian masters. He says, work with fear and trembling, which doesn't mean what you think it means. What Paul means here is, you are to work under the realization that there is an authority over you, and you are to submit to that authority, and you are to work hard for that authority. Look at what it says in verse 6. He says, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. What Paul is saying here is, don't just work hard when the boss is around. For eye service, as people pleasers. There's a saying in the workplace that many people joke about. They say, when the boss is away, what? The children will play, right? Y'all heard that? When the boss is away, the children will play. Well, the application we see here is that this is not to be our practice in the workplace, believers. Paul says to Christian employees here, Christian bond servants, when your boss is away, you are to continue to work hard as a bond servant of Christ. He says at the end of verse 6, this is the will of God that you are to do from the heart. Now, why is Paul concerned with this? Why is this the will of God? Why does God concern himself with what workers do in the workplace? Here's the reason. Because just like with wives and husbands and children and parents, when workers work as bondservants for Christ, when they work hard, when the boss is away, when they take pride in what they do, they don't, and they don't just work to, to get by or to get a check, but they work to better the business and to serve others and to serve those in authority over them. They represent Christ well. That's what Paul's saying. When I was in seminary, I worked as, a, as an accounting clerk at a cardiology clinic, and I started out at the bottom of the barrel in the office, and, and even though that was not the job I wanted to do long term, I'd been called to ministry, I was training for ministry, my mentality was, I am going to work hard for the Lord in this job. I'm going to represent Christ well. I'm going to be a bondservant for Christ. Now, unfortunately, that was not always my attitude on the job growing up. But in this job, it was. Day in and day out, I worked hard while the boss was around, and I worked equally as hard when the boss wasn't looking. I had to work late nights because I was in seminary, and though at times I was the only person in the office for hours on end, I worked as if my boss was looking right over my shoulder. It wasn't any different if they would have been looking over my shoulder or not. I worked hard for the Lord. I did not cut corners. And you know what happened? My co-workers, my office manager, and even the CEO of this huge cardiology clinic with 25-plus cardiologists at three different locations took notice. He, in fact, invited me into his office to praise me personally and get, gave me a raise. That happened twice. But even better than that, the way in which I worked opened up opportunities for me to talk about my faith to my co-workers and, yes, even the CEO. It's amazing. 
You see, when they saw me go in day in and day out and work hard as a bond servant for Christ, they didn't know that was what I was doing, but it looked different than what a lot of them were doing. When I made that my mentality, they knew something was different about me in the way in which I worked. That's what Paul is calling for here. Folks, just like husbands and wives and and children and parents are able to show forth the gospel in their relationships, you are able to show forth the gospel in the way in which you work. Look at verses 7 through 8. Paul says, rendering service with the goodwill as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Again, Paul says here, when you work hard, don't work hard to make yourself look good or to receive the praise of men, even though that may happen, like it did with me, my job in seminary. Paul says, don't work for that reason, but work to make the Lord look good. Work to receive your praise from him. Folks, this is a a wonderful motivation for us in the workplace. Get this, if you just stop at being a people pleaser or pleasing your boss, that is not a motivation that's going to last long term. Some of you have great bosses, some of you don't. But they're all going to frustrate you at times, aren't they? There are going to be times when it seems as if your boss is not that that knowledgeable of your contributions in the workplace. At times, you're going to feel unappreciated or underappreciated by him or her. You're not going to feel motivated to work for him or her. But if we make it our mindset to work for the Lord, if we render our services ultimately to him, that changes things. Because he sees all that we do, and he is worthy of the best in which we have. He is. Notice, Paul says at the end of verse 8, it doesn't matter the vocation. Paul says, whether he is a bondservant or is free. It doesn't matter if you're flipping burgers at McD's. Or you're in upper management at a Fortune 500 company. The same applies. Listen, this is key, and this should be motivation for all of you going back out into the workplace tomorrow and next week. Though one in an upper management position may be rewarded greatly in this life, and the one flipping burgers may just get a pat on the back, if that... It's the one who works as a bondservant of Christ and renders his services to the Lord who will be rewarded greatly by God. On judgment day, there are going to be burger flippers embraced and CEOs condemned and vice versa. Because what matters to God is whether or not we lived our lives under the lordship of Christ and whether or not we rendered our services to him. So to our Christian workers in here, here's the application we can make from what Paul is saying here in a nutshell. Christian employees, your boss is ultimately in heaven. 
And he is watching you every minute of the day. He sees how you spend every minute of your time. So represent him well by working hard for him as a bondservant of Christ, rendering your services to him, knowing that the work you do for him and the way you represent him in the workplace will be rewarded by him. That doesn't just go for employees. Employees are not the only one God has his eye on. is also watching you employers as well. Employers, you're going to have to give an account before God as well. And that's what Paul goes on to say here in verse 9. We, we can make application of what he says in verse 9 to employers. Look at the second point of application here from the passage. Not only are employees to work hard for their employers as to the Lord, but employers, you are to not abuse your authority, but you are to lead your employees like your master leads you. Look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Paul says, masters, employers, you do the same thing. Just as I have told your employees to ultimately render their services to Christ as they serve you, you direct them, you manage them, you lead them as God manages and directs and leads you. I want you to notice something here. Notice that Paul is transforming, like we said earlier, this master-slave relationship by calling for masters to do the same thing and to lead the way God leads. Believers, you know and I know that the way God leads and directs us is very different from the way many in positions of authority led in Paul's day and lead today. God leads by example. He leads through service. He leads in humility. And he did not call for any of his followers to do what he himself was not willing to do. And we see that displayed in the person and work of Christ, don't we? We learn in Scripture that though God is a just and righteous God, he is also gracious and merciful. He leads in a loving way. He does not play favorites. There is no partiality with him. Paul says, how different is this from the way many lead in our world today? Many today, they lead in a demeaning and domineering way. That's why Paul says, stop your threatening. Don't misuse and abuse your authority. Treat those under you fairly. Treat them as you would want to be treated. Remember that though there's a difference in authority, you and them are equal in value and worth as a person in the eyes of God. You're both created in God's image. You're both His image bearers. And if you're believers and they're believers, then you're brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, Paul says, treat them accordingly. Manage and direct and lead them the way God manages and directs and leads you. Look at the end of verse 9 again. Paul says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, 
Paul says to the bosses, guess what, bosses? You have a boss too. You may think you're the big boss man, but you have a much bigger boss over you. And he is in heaven, and he is watching everything you do. He's watching how you treat those who are placed under your authority, and you will have to answer to him for how you treat them. He is their master, and he is watching what they do when you're not around, but he is also your master, and he's watching how you lead them and how you treat them. And one day, you're going to have to give an account before him of how you treated those he placed under your authority. Employers, I urge you to keep this mentality with you as you go into the workplace each and every day that you are going to have to answer to God for how you conduct yourself in the workplace as an employer and employees the same goes for you as well. And guess what, folks? Not only are employers and employees going to have to give an account before God, but we are all going to have to one day stand before him. There's coming a day when we're all going to have to give an account before God. And scripture is clear that there is no partiality with God. He's going to hold us all to the same standard. His perfect standard, which scripture is clear we have all fallen short of. And God knows this. He has said this in his word, which is why God sent his son to live for us, to lay his life down for us, so that we, through him, through Christ, through his righteous life, through his death and resurrection, can be made right with God. And in that day, that final day, among other things, There's going to be one main question asked of every one of us, and it's going to be this. What did you do with God's son? What did you do with this son? God sent his son for us, to live for us, to die for us. He was raised up for us. What did we do with him? Did you accept him? Did you receive him? Did you trust in him alone for your salvation? Or did you reject him? We're going to have to all give an account for what we did with Christ. We're going to all have to give an account as well, believers, for whether or not we took that peace that Jesus came to bring to us and whether or not we applied that to our relationships as husband and wife, parent and child, an employer, an employee. So I encourage you this morning, first, if you have not, make sure that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Make sure that that you are trusting in Him, believing on Him, placing your faith in Him so that you can be right before God and hear those wonderful words in that last day, not guilty, but righteous. Not my enemies, my children. Second, Believers, make sure you're walking worthy in your relationships with others by taking the peace that Jesus came to bring and applying it to your marriage, to the way in which you parent, to your relationships in the workplace. Let's pray.